So I was in medicine. You know, I was dealing with being deployed and taking care of individuals with COVID-19. But then I still had these career aspirations. And I was just like, I can't let this go. How am I going to make this a reality? And I was in this um, leadership program by the American Academy of Neurology. And you get a, a coach, a professional coach, and you have weekly meetings. And let me tell you, that professional coach, she saw right through me. She, like, we would have sessions and she was just like, you don't really want it. Because if you really wanted it, we wouldn't be having the same conversation every meeting. This is Show Your Business Who's Boss. Listen in on behind the scenes, unfiltered conversations with my favorite business owner friends who take charge and make their businesses work for them. Don't just be your own boss, show your business who's boss. I'm Pia Silva. I'm really lucky to know a lot of amazing people in my life. And there are quite a few of those people who aren't technically entrepreneurs. And I still really want to have them on the podcast anyway. And today's guest is one of them. But actually, she has kind of become an entrepreneur and she has a lot of amazing things to share. And I'm super excited to talk with her today. So let me just tell you a little bit about who she is so you can get all impressed first. Dr. Cynthia Armand is an assistant professor of neurology at Montefiore Einstein and the fellowship director at the prestigious Montefiore Headache Center here in New York City. She is on the founding board of the Society of Haitian Neuroscientists, where she also serves as vice president. She is the current web editor at JAMA Neurology and the host of the JAMA Neurology Author Interviews podcast. And she is also heavily involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion work and headache education with the American Headache Society. Dr. Armand is an avid lover of neurology and health news with a strong interest in patient education, as well as social media as a valuable means of patient empowerment and knowledge, which is a lot of what we're going to talk about today. So, okay, impressive, but Dr. Armand also happens to be my dear friend from college. Lucky me. (laughs) So we met, I believe we actually met freshman year, like first, second week of school at the auditions for the prestigious dance troupe Precision. And we ended up being the only two freshmen to get in. So we became fast friends right away. And eventually we became the co-directors of this dance troop as seniors. So you can see that I'm still very proud of that, <laughs> even though it was senior freshman year of college. I'm still very proud of that. Cynthia was always going to be a doctor, like since I met her, but she always was also this just amazing performer and this actress and had this amazing presence. And throughout college, I, I kept asking her, I was like, why are you going to be a doctor? <laughs> You're such an amazing performer and actress. And she always said, yeah, I love acting and I love performance. I'm not going to put too many uh, words in her voice, but she said, but I'm going to go become a doctor first and then and then I'll do something in the in the more acting world. And so here she is doing just that. And I'm so excited to talk about how these two things have married together. So Cynthia, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here. Oh, thanks so much, Pia. Gosh, you took me down memory lane, like precision and dance. And gosh, those like, what what, what was that? Like nine, 10 hour days on the dance, Marley. (laughs) But I'm so happy to be here. And like, you're a boss yourself. And I am so lucky to have you as a friend, like I have to say. (laughs) Oh, girl. Well, we worked really hard side by side for four years and we continue to work hard and you have done so many amazing things. Let's 
let's take it back a little bit because I think it, you're such, a, and I've written about you. There's an article somewhere. If you search Pia Silva Forbes, I think dancing neurologist, <laughs> you'll find like an article where I mentioned you at one point. Yeah. But let's go back to that because your performance and your stage presence, that was always such a big part of who you were. And it just, you know, obviously, because I'm so not a doctor type of person, because it requires a certain kind of learning that I am just not good at. <laughs> so I was always like, you know, <laughs> no, like you were just learning chemistry and stuff. And I was like, what are you? That looks awful. <laughs> but I'm so proud of you for doing it. Why, thank you. I mean, yes. So when I was growing up, I always had this dream of being an actor and being on stage and performing. And I think it's because of the way it made me feel. Number one, I felt bigger than who I was when I was on stage. And that feeling translated to every time I did behind the scenes work. I said, you know, I'm working for this feeling and I'm going to do this. Like I would spend hours like working on material. And also I have this dance background. So growing up, my mom put me in ballet class and that's what I did every Monday, Thursday night and Saturday all day. I would be at Brooklyn College in the city um, in Brooklyn and I would take dance classes all morning and afternoon. And I was probably the youngest one in the classes and I eventually got into this performing class and that was it because you are doing material to go on stage. Mm. And that's that's when I knew. I said, you know what? I, this needs to be part of my career. I'm going to do this. And, you know, I carried on in high school. But when I got to college, like Wesleyan, college is like a mini world, especially Wesleyan, because literally no one is telling you you cannot do something. Everything is there for you. They give you a budget. Um, I know, I think Lin-Manuel talked about this, how like he was able to create musicals because they gave you a budget and you can just- I think he did In the Heights at Wesleyan. Yes. By the way, guys, so Lin-Manuel was four years ahead of us. So we just missed him. He also yeah. went to my high school and elementary school, but we were like right before him. So we heard about him because he was in Caliente. Yes, he was in Caliente. Spanish dance troupe. I don't think he was in Precision. No, I, no. I know he wasn't. Anyway, sorry, keep going. Yes, they give you the budget. They let you do whatever you want. We did so much stuff with it. Oh my <laughs> so gosh, it was amazing because literally the sky was a limit. So when I got there, I had this whole plan and I said, all right, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to be an actor. Like I like dance, but I'm just going to be an actor and I'm going to take all the requirements. So I did that. I started out with that. And then unfortunately, I didn't feel as fulfilled as I did in dance. And I had a lot of issues with what was going on in terms of kind of the behind the scenes work. I felt like um, there were a lot of period pieces that were doing. In and, theater. Yes, in theater. Okay. And I didn't, and I felt like I was always single, singled out along with other individuals who probably didn't embody what the period pieces were trying to accomplish. We didn't look like the characters. And it it became this dilemma yeah. and this yeah. internalized dilemma that you hear the actors talk about every single day. And, you know, fortunately people stuck with it and they're breaking barriers. But I felt that when I was, you know, working through it. And I told myself, like, is this the battle that I want right now? Like, what am I passionate about? Is it the acting? Or is it the performance aspect? Because then I had dance. So I decided, and I also was falling in love simultaneously with medicine and 
neuroscience. I became a neuroscience and behavior major. So I decided to kind of shift over to neuroscience because I love that. And I kept acting and dance as a hobby, but the performance aspect grew on me and I continued to create. And that's what I fell in love with. I loved creating and I loved what happened, the, the finished product after creating. And so groups like Precision allowed me to fill that void of creation. Just I would literally sit in my living room at Wesleyan and just think of a concept, listen to songs and have inspiration and say, you know what, this is what this dance is going to be like. And I would, I remember going home on break, just spending hours in my parents' living room, choreographing pieces. And I was just fearless about it. I like, I didn't care. I was just like, you know what? I love this. I'm just going to do it. And then I would come back on campus and we would have shows and I would just sit you guys down and say, all right, this is going to be my piece and I need seven people. We're going to figure this out. And I would tell you guys the concept. And it was there, like this living, moving representation of this creation. And I love that. Oh my gosh. You're such an amazing choreographer. You choreographed so many great pieces. And the and it's so interesting to even hear you say this because you didn't, it wasn't unlike any piece I choreographed, it was just straight about the movements. You always had this whole story. <laughs> we were we were like doing a mini, a mini play in a dance. <laughs> there was a lot of acting, which is not my thing. <laughs> acting is not, you're like, no, we have to use this emotion and then we have to do this emotion. And, and it was so beautiful. I wish I, I wish we had some videotape of some of those, the one with the scarves and us running around like in costumes and stuff, beautiful music. I don't remember you acting in anything. Yeah. So did I, you leave it pretty early? Yeah, I left it pretty early. I think I left it after the first year because I did the first two um, semesters of all the acting requirements. And then I, decide, I I saw that. I read articles and I was just like, am I really passionate about this? Is this something that I'm going to take on later in life? Is this going to be my fight, right? Mm. Is this going to be my fight? What am I more passionate about? And it turned out that I was more passionate about that performance aspect helping individuals in the audience. Like, let me tell you, because there's something special about seeing the sparkle in an audience member's eyes when they're looking at a piece and they're getting it. Like they're literally sitting and you see it evolve. I usually pick out one or two people when I'm dancing and I kind of hone in on them. And you you see like the gesture and, and, and the body language change as you're performing and you see them understand what you're doing. And I love that piece. And to me, it's a form of helping individuals. They come to your show to forget about their problems. They want to be entertained. And while they're there, you should put them on this journey, take them on the journey along with you. Let's talk about, and I, I think I did a piece about childhood. Like I think it was called younglings. And I had this like, oh my God, it was so <laughs> good. We were all dressed up as kids. Yeah. And it was like, I'm going to take everybody through their childhood and I want them to look like little kids in a candy shop, just watching us and just being. Oh my God, the oversized lollipop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I saw the audience just, their eyes brightened. And to me, that was worth everything. That was worth all those hours of creating the piece, the frustrations and recounting and that whole journey, all of that was worth it. When I was on stage having the feeling of performing and also seeing the audience members look at me. I feel like I was helping them. 
You are a rare breed. Nobody likes that, <laughs> but you, <laughs> like most people do. I never look at the audience. I'm like, don't look at me. I don't want to see you. I have a completely different <laughs> feeling about it. I just feel like most people don't are, are uncomfortable on stage. So it's so interesting that that is, that lights you up so naturally. Yeah, no, it was great. I I lived for those moments. I always, oh, I can't wait until this performance. I can't wait, wait until the next night, especially when we had like three shows in a row on consecutive nights. I was just like, oh, I can't wait. I get to do this three times. Oh, this is amazing. <laughs> so I, I really, I miss those times. I really do. I do too. I do too. Yeah, we're we're on like group texts with our other dancer friends. Chelsea, who was on the show last year, just kind of every once in a while being like, oh, can we get together and dance? <laughs> oh, I miss this. Great times. Okay, so then you graduated. We kept dancing. Yes, we did. I even switched my whole schedule around. I mean, I went to med. So I, I think after college, I took two years off to kind of figure out if I really wanted to go to med school. And then we danced in the city during those two years like that was and that was on my med school application i was like you better believe i'm gonna write this down like i danced with my friends we created this new york extension to this dance company and and actually in my college in my med school essay i can't remember if i maybe it was in my neurology essay my neurology essay i wrote about the um connection between choreography and like care, like medical care and the emergency room, how it's choreographed and it's a performance. And Ooh. and it was just, and I was like, this is completely out of the box, but this is just who I am. And I lived and breathed that. So yeah, so we continued on. And that was, I think that was, for me, that was a great way to spend those two years kind of sorting that out and seeing what who I was and what the connection is, dance and medicine. Mm. I love that you wrote about that. I didn't know that. Yeah, we put on a, a full-scale theater <laughs> evening soiree performance and also just like dance randomly. Like we'd like meet up in the park with a boombox and like, do choreography and stuff. It was, super, it was super fun. And then you went to med school and you had to do that. That doesn't give you a lot of space. You were, you kind of disappeared <laughs> for, for how long? It felt like forever. I mean, it takes a while to become a neurologist. You know, I was telling everyone, um, I was two years out and a lot of my med school class members, they had just come from college. So they were already in this like study grind. And so I was coming from like, yeah, performance, like dancing. And I remember distinctively sitting in class, class was over and then everybody just went to the library and I was just like, so I'm supposed to go to the library now? <laughs> this is my life. <laughs> this is real. I have to go study. <laughs> so I, I think that that's when it got real. I was like, okay, I need to set this aside and really concentrate on this because if I'm going to be the best of the best and take care of people, I need to just take it, take it, put it on the back burner a little bit. I'm going to come back to it. And I did, like I did a talent show. I, I had one of my friends dance as well. She danced point. We, we did it. We did kind of a performance during like the talent show there. And so it was still there, but not to the same extent. Right. Right. So you, so you went and you did all of that and then you did your residency and then you ended up at Montefiore. Yes. That's where you went directly. Did you do a yeah, residency? In, I went, I did 
med school at UConn in University of Connecticut. And I wanted to go back to the city. That's where all my family is. And right. I just knew I belonged there. So yeah, I mean, that was my first choice. I matched there because, you know, getting into a residency program is a match, not a, <laughs> not a handshake. And this is where I still am. Like, I love it. It's amazing. And yeah, you've worked your way up the ranks. I mean, you went in and now you're running stuff. I'm so proud of you. And so throughout this experience, we have been chatting about like the the future because you had to put kind of the performance stuff on the back burner a bit while you did all of this. But then it was like, well, where am I going to bring that performance aspect back into my life? And that's why I wrote about the dancing neurologist, because I've been like waiting for the dancing neurologist to like, come back out. I wasn't sure exactly what it was going to look like. Uh, I saw your Instagram. You're dancing. You literally are the dancing neurologist. So we've been chatting about it for years. And it's a hard to it's, it's a hard thing to do, obviously, like you already have a, a full career and you also clearly participate in a lot of things outside of your job. I mean, running the fellowship program and like working outside on, on the board of the Haitian neuroscientists. Is that what it's called? Yeah, Society of Haitian Neuroscientists. Brand new, getting themselves together. It's an amazing group of passionate people, and I'm very excited about it. Wow. Yeah, that's so specific. Haitian neuroscientists. What's the mission? They are creating um, awareness and improving neurologic care in Haiti and Haitian communities in the United States. So they work with a, a medical school in Haiti and they give lectures remotely, and they teach neurology and different aspects of neurosurgery, anatomy, to residents, doctors, uh, medical students, in order to help elevate the care and the learning there. And they've made a huge impact. The students are amazing. I'm actually giving a lecture, my first lecture next month. And to me, that's cool, because I was missing that in my life. I was missing this the, the act of charity and mentorship mm. um, and giving back to my community. That's incredible. I'm so glad to hear that. And good luck on your first lecture. I know you'll you'll kill it. I mean, you're already you're already teaching people lots of things, I- including and this is part of what I think is. I mean, I have my own interpretation of what your vision is. I'd love to hear what your vision is. It's using the fact that you are one of that small percentage of people that enjoys showing up on camera, on stage, you know, like uh, the performer in you is such an asset that a lot of people, I am constantly coaching people on how to get over their stage fright and they're not wanting to do that in order to get their message out. You have the complete opposite (laughs) situation. You're, you thrive in front of the camera. And so it is this amazing asset that you can use to further your own messages. And that seems to be what you have, and you've really been doing it. I mean, you've been thinking about doing it for, I mean, since you were still in residency and stuff and way too busy, but in the last couple of years, you've actually crossed over and your Instagram is fire right now. (laughs) I mean, I've been slowly taking the steps to develop this and I want to make this point across because yes, it, you are working with people who, you know, they're scared of doing it and they, they want to get themselves out there. But I have to say, even with my background, I felt like all these years that I had been talking about, I was a bit crippled because 
in college, I felt fearless and no one was there to tell me you can't do this and you need this X, Y, and Z to approve what you're doing. I just did it. Right. So I transitioned from that thought process to this person who felt small. And I think that was medical education. When you're in medical school, and this is my opinion, you are working tirelessly to achieve this level of greatness in order to take care of individuals, especially in life or death situations. And because of those high stakes situations, there's this checks and balances and hierarchy that you go through in order to get to the top of the top where you want to be. So this hierarchy of medicine is, you know, shadowing when you're not even in medicine, then you become a medical student, then you become an intern, then you become a resident, then you become a chief resident, and then you become a fellow who's somebody who can practice on their own but want to subspecialize, like a headache fellow. Mm-hmm. And then you become an attending who is the top of the top who can practice on their own, and no one's probably going to question what they're doing if they're making a clinical decision. So along that chain of command, the person at the bottom is the one who's going to get the most pushback from others on the top when it comes to sharing ideas and speaking their mind. I felt like that. I felt oh my God, so I need this person to approve what I'm saying. You have to approve my plan, okay? Then when you get to the intern, they're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready to go, but then you get broken down by the system, right? So you mm-hmm. are you know, working hard, not sleeping well, um, seeing patients day and night, and then the medical decisions you make has to be supervised by a chain of command. And yes, it should be like that, but I think what it did to me was my mind and my creativity got stifled. And so I started developing this internal rhetoric of you're not good enough, always need someone to, to validate what you're doing. And it's always going to be like that. Right. And, and I'm not speaking for everyone. There are medical students that I meet till this day. Like I'm just like, you go, like you're killing it. You clearly don't need anybody's validation, you know, practice safely. Like you're here to learn, get it. I wasn't that go getter person when I was in med school. I was kind of like, let me sit back and listen. I, I was a go getter, like on the low, but I was crippled by this. You're not good enough. You always have to double check yourself and you always have to check in with someone else to tell you this is okay. And so I kind of went through training like that. And then I, it translated into my career aspirations, like what I wanted to do in terms of melding performance and medicine. I felt like all the ideas that I had, they were small and it became this, you know, imposter syndrome rhetoric that I developed. And Let me tell you, it is so hard when you have imposter syndrome. And I think the the majority, if you you look at the statistics, it's more commonly seen in women for obvious reasons. And everything, everything, if someone were to ask me to like give a talk on something, the first thing I would say to myself is, what did they ask me? Do I, am I good enough for that? Like, and then you look at my resume and it's like, like, duh, like, you yeah, are how many alkaloids do I need before I'm good enough to do this? Right. And, right. and I started to search for that validation in other people. So before I created something and before I, I had an, when I had an idea, I would kind of test it out with friends and test it out with 
people who I thought were revered in the field. And that became really exhausting because it was every day this internal self-talk of you're not good enough. You need to do X, Y, and Z. Can I just tell you, like, I thought I had to go get a certificate in health in order to be like on social media and like just be, just have presence. Like that's how crazy this self-talk was. I, I spoke to one of my friends. <laughs> what do you mean a certificate in health? You have, you're a doctor. Isn't that the certificate? <laughs> exactly. I was talking to one of my friends and I said, oh, like I'm thinking about taking this course. And she was just like, hold up, hold. Like what is wrong with you? You're a physician. Are you kidding me? Like, are you kidding me? Like, stop, get a grip. <laughs> <laughs> was that Stephanie? <laughs> no, it was. You should follow her, Elizabeth Sirkowski. She is, she's doing this. Like she has her, like she's owns, owns her, her practice. She's killing it in North Carolina. And I looked at her and I was like, wow, she's doing her thing. And that's where I want to be. I want to do my thing, but I have to get rid of this need for validation. Yeah. And it, it was it was crippling. That is that's fascinating and and an interesting problem because on the one hand, so when you were talking telling the story, I can imagine, and also everything I know about being a doctor is from Grey's Anatomy, <laughs> slash talking to you. That's it. That's all I know. But you guys are going in as the guppies, but you've been at the at the top of your class, you've been working your butt off. You've been doing so well. So you're all built up and then you come down and I could see how it, they, there would be a reason to create that hierarchy because you don't want pe- kids who don't know what they don't know. Kids, you know, young people who are new in this profession, they're the first year medical students and they think they know because they're very smart and they're used to knowing a lot of stuff. So I could see how that would be super important. But it sounds like the the negative effect is that it it affected all parts of your confidence. And I can totally see that, too. If you can't do anything without somebody else telling you it's okay for six years, I mean, right, six years. Yeah. So even more than that, I mean, I was more than that. Right. I know. Well, I'm saying like until you started to get up to the upper. upper Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the day that I decided to practice, like that I practiced on my own and I made a clinical decision, I, I remember the feeling and looking behind me and like looking at the person I was talking to. And I was just like, well, this is going to be the plan X, Y, and Z. And they were just like, okay. And then they walked away and I was kind of like, um, okay, that's it. I did that. All right. That's the plan. <laughs> so it was funny. I was, yeah, right. Oh, I, I finally made it. <laughs> I finally, I'm back to where I'm used to, I was used to being before, which is what I say goes and I yeah. get to do that. And now you get to embrace that and start to share that with the world. I mean, I think part of what is so fun about watching you start to embrace it online and you have embraced it quite a bit recently. So you're getting over your, like, how does, how's your imposter syndrome feeling now? Okay. So, uh, and this was a bit of a journey and I, I feel like I got a kick in the butt during the pandemic. And I see these memes about the pandemic, about like, if you were not a hustler before the pandemic and it didn't bring, it didn't come out of you after, during that time frame, you're never going to be a hustler. And honestly, I, I see that and I'm just like, 
that sucks for the people who like, you know, had to like lay back. And I don't believe that a hundred percent, but like literally during the pandemic, I was looking at all the creative ways individuals and in different industries had to adapt and change and grind in order to make a living, right? So I was in medicine, you know, I was dealing with, you know, being deployed and taking care of individuals with COVID-19, but then I still had these career aspirations and I was just like, I can't let this go. How am I going to make this a reality? And I was in this um, leadership program by the American Academy of Neurology and it's amazing. Like you, you, you get a, a coach, a professional coach, and you have weekly meetings. And let me tell you that professional coach, she saw right through me. She like, we would have sessions and she was just like, you don't really want it because if you really wanted it, we wouldn't be having the same conversation every meeting. What's wrong with you? And I was, just, and like that last session I had with her was kind of like that. And it's, her name is Dr. Joanne Smikely. She is like, super boss, has her own podcast now, but literally she just lit a fire underneath me. And I got really annoyed. Like, I was kind of like, what do you mean? I don't really want it. I do want it. Like, how do you not see that I want this? (laughs) So (laughs) literally I just got fed up and I, you know, took a deep dive into what really was it. And that's when I realized that it was the validation that I was searching for. And then I had to almost do this like self-talk constantly and say to myself, you do not need to ask someone if this is a good idea. Look at your track record. If you think it is a good idea, do it. And if you fall flat on your face, learn from it and move on. You cannot be afraid of failure. That's another thing that she told me. And I see that in actors and, and, and musicians. You can't be afraid of failure. And I was afraid of putting myself out there because of the failure aspect. And now it's like, you know what? I'm just going to do it because I have to do this. I feel like I have a calling to do this. It's, it's, I live, breathe and sleep what I'd like to do with social media and medicine and learning and educating my patients and residents. And I have to do this self-work and self-talk and say to myself, you are good enough. You are going to kill it. If this is not well-received, take a look at it, learn from it, and tweak it. And that's it. And be yourself, right? So that dancing video that you saw, you would not believe. I had this idea in my mind for like five months and I would always, you know, internalize it and talk about it. And I didn't want to do it because I was afraid of what people would think, right? So I had this position at Montefiore and, oh, like, look at this doctor, like doing this social media dance. And I thought it would ruin my credibility. That's BS, man. Like, Yeah. What kind of response did you get? Everyone was like, <laughs> I was dying. <laughs> yeah. And you like, can you please make a hundred more posts? Like this has made my day. It felt good. Like yeah. I was being genuine. Like, yes. Back to those it's days. so you. The studio. And yeah. You, know, you can't take that away from me. You're going to have to make sure you, is it, I don't, it was a story. Does that mean, is it like somewhere to be seen? You're going to have to make sure you make some of these before this podcast comes out so everyone can see, because it's like, it's like the kind of post, I mean, look, I'm a good dancer. We were the freshmen who got in, but Cynthia's 
an amazing dancer. So when you do these little posts, I'm like, oh my God, you look like such a boss. And it doesn't take away from your credibility. It adds to your credibility. In my opinion, it adds to your credibility because it's like, you're, wait a second, what? She can also do that? You know what I mean? It's like excellence in one area is actually demonstrating you have excellence in other areas because that's how you approach things. Thank you. I will, I will work on it. And yeah, I have plenty of ideas. And I have to say, I love being on stage, but let me tell you, like the minutes, the seconds before I press publish, like I have this burning in my chest. <laughs> like a good burning? It's a good, it's like the same burn that I had before I stepped on stage. You know, it's just like, yeah. ah, press, press publish, just press it. <laughs> so tell me if this is accurate as a potential plan or idea, because it's no question like videos like that. It's like people love that, you know, it, it gets seen. It, it helps the algorithm. People love it. But you you're writing these content rich posts and you're spreading this really important message. And if I may take a second to just tell a short story about the fact that, you know, I have been struggling with migraines since I was 11. So I had migraines this whole time, like <laughs> the whole time I've known Cynthia. And she it was like, oh, good. She's becoming a headache doctor because I have headaches. So, and then at one point, even though she was already a headache doctor for a long time, I was pregnant and I had this headache and I wasn't allowed to take the medicine I usually take. And I like texted her, like, I've had this headache for like seven days. And she got me into her specialist boss doctor, like with my pregnancy. It was like, oh my God, I'm the luckiest person in the world to know somebody <laughs> who not only got me in there, but she was the one who's like, you have to come in, Pia. Like, this is not okay. You cannot suffer with a headache for two weeks, pregnant, not taking any medicine. You have to come in. And 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 then I started, you know, because I, I probably shouldn't see my own friend. So she sent me to her, to somebody else. But there was so much education. Actually, my headaches have gotten way better now that I've been going there. And that is because headaches are not... I don't want to say, I don't know what to call them. It's not clear cut. They're a very confusing, elusive idea. And so the education part of it, which is what you're spreading in your social media, is so important. And so many people suffer with this. And your ability to get eyes and communicate in a way that gets people is like a a public service. So there are like headaches, which are different types of um, pains in the head. And then there are migraine attacks and what it is it's it's a disease it's migraine disease right and there's so much the issue is that there's so much stigma around it right because someone who's suffering from a migraine attack they do not have a cane usually they don't have a physical representation of disability they have this internalized sensation that's wreaking havoc on the rest of their body and unfortunately people who do not understand what that is like or what is occurring will look at the person who's suffering and dismiss that suffering. And it's just heartbreaking. And so migraine disease over the years has not had a lot of celebrity presence in the past because I think because of that stigma, you know, who would want to deal with someone who has migraine disease, who's going to call out because they have a migraine attack? Like, that, that's that's the rhetoric. And honestly, my, the work that I want to do is contribute to stop that rhetoric and make people understand this is a disease. Like this is, this, this is something that impacts someone's lifestyle. You know, they cannot make a living 
they their jobs are in danger because they have a disease that is impacting their ability to function normally. And there are different levels of it. Some people can have what we call episodic migraine, which they might have four to eight attacks per month. Those attacks might last long. And some people might have chronic migraine, which is 15 or more attacks. I see patients who have migraine every single day. And you know what? They got to keep going and working because they have a family to support. And they're afraid. They're afraid to tell their employers. They're afraid to tell family and friends because the look that they get in response to what they're suffering from is usually not one of support. It's one of judgment because there's a misunderstanding. Because mm. so if you've never had one, you think, oh, you have a headache. I have a headache too. It's fine. Right. Exactly. Right. I mean, I remember yes. when you called me. I mean, no, no. I think I texted you one time and then you, and I don't know, you tell me because this is a good example. You, te- I texted you like, hey, how you doing? And you were kind of like, I have a headache. It was like a, te- it was a text. So you really can't tell what tone is in the yeah. text. But then something told me to call you and you were crying. Yeah. You were not well. And at, and to me, that was, you know, a serious situation, you know, like we had to get you help. We had to get you medication right away. And that doesn't translate to, to, to people yeah. when they're thinking about migraine disease and, and, and what have you. So that message has to, has to come across. And there are so many patients who are advocates and they're bringing forth that message. They're, they're showing their lives. And I think that's completely courageous. But at the same time, I want to, as a provider, bring forth this creative messaging that is empowering, right? Because I think that piece is missing. Like there's understanding, there's information that can just be black and white, but then you need this colorful imagery that creates empowerment. And that's my goal. I want to create empowerment. I want you to feel like you have that S on your chest and you're going to just do it and get things done and, and, you know, band together. And, and this will not affect who you are. You will be proud and walk with your head up high. That That's my goal. A different way to look at this than I think most people think about some some sort of chronic pain. The idea, I mean, a lot of what you're talking about is the mindset and the approach and how people feel about it, because that's so true. I mean, I deal with that all the time. It's like, well, there's the headache, there's the migraine, and then there's how you feel about the migraine. And how you feel about the migraine can make the migraine 10 times worse, you know, mm-hmm. the guilt, like the, yeah. So obviously I I understand that completely. But what's so amazing is that you are, that's why I always get the chills when we talk about this. You are the perfect person to bring that message out there because it's not just about saying it, it's about being it. Right. I, in my journey and kind of coming forward with, you know, the social media and working working on all of this, I wanted to be genuine. I wanted to make sure that what I was doing wasn't for likes, wasn't for follows. And I, and I went through this process because again, you know, I had to, I had to battle this validation. And I finally came to the conclusion of, you know what, I'm doing this for the empowerment to spread, spread awareness. And if you don't like what I'm posting, fine, don't like it, don't follow me. And if there's something you don't like about it, fine. But you know what, I'm going to be true to myself. I'm going to be genuine. And this is what I'm going to do. So I'm going to find my people. Hey, I think the more you embrace being yourself, the more you're not going to just attract. I mean, it, it's 
it's how we create connection with you is you going a step beyond the sharing of the information Mm -hmm. because you are an empowering figure. And there's a lot of people out there suffering from this (laughs) and they want to follow a person, not there's plenty of information. Let's put it that way. There's plenty of WebND blogs. (laughs) Yes. Yes, there are. (laughs) And we don't need those. We need like somebody that we trust to share that information in a less dry way. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I always talk about this with my friends. Like we always talk about how usually what's out there is dry and very stiff. And Mm -hmm. I just want to be relaxed and calm. And it's like, I don't need to take myself that seriously. Like laugh a little bit, you know, understand you know, my compassion and my empathy is genuine. I recognize the difference of when it's time to be that way and when it's time not to. But really, it's about the empowerment and mm. not being this person who's not relatable. Because how am I going to empower you if you if you cannot see yourself in the message mm-hmm. that I'm communicating? Well, that's also a, a gen- very generalized perception of doctors in general, like they're above us and removed, <laughs> right? Like they're supposed to be like that. I, I mean, don't, don't they teach you to be like that? I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's funny that you say that because um, in my medical school, I always say my medical school was like the Wesleyan version because it was, you know, you had a lot of creative types in my class and I definitely meshed well with them. But there's a difference. There are different types of medical students. There are some who, you know, they're research oriented. They're strictly about protocol. They're learning the aspects of medicine, the essence of it. And that's it. There's patient one, patient two, patient three, patient four. UConn was really good at accessing the humanism in medicine. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what drove me. I wasn't interested in talking about subject one, subject two, subject three. I was interested in talking about Cynthia is a 20-year-old woman who has, you know, X, Y, and Z. She works this way. She's this. I always tell my fellows, if you don't tell me the social history about the patient, where they're from, what the ethnicity is, and like a nice little anecdote after you've spoken to them, you get an F. Because you have to access the person and the humanism behind what is occurring in order for you to 100% take care of what's happening with them. You have to listen. And I feel as though, yes, medical school does do that, but it's up to the person who's learning that to hone in on it and practice it and make it a part of how they see individuals, how they see patients. And there are some students who do that very well, and there are other students who do not. And I think, and I can't speak for all medical schools, but I think UConn was good at that because- We had individual preceptor sessions and I've had interactions with preceptors where we have to talk about these social issues. We have to talk about what's going on with the patient in order for you to understand how to help them. It's about individualized care. Not every patient, every patient is not the same. So what you create for one person should not be the same as what you create with the, for the other person. And that's, that's important. So I think it's, it's a combination. Yeah. I can com- I can completely see that, especially as we talk about how this disease in particular is received by by the people around them. So maybe different cultures, different communities, different races are even thinking of it 
even more differently. You are you work with the American Headache Society on diversity and equity and inclusion work. Is that for doctors or is that for patients or both or what? So this actually just came up. I was appointed to be a co-chair of this task force that was created by the American Headache Society. And it's and it's super congratulations. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. I am working. My co-chair is Dr. Rebecca Wells. She is an amazing headache specialist as well. And she it she and I are working to create a task force of several members who are evaluating the American Headache Society and making sure that diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives are upheld within the society and the society is it's a professional network of it's a physician led professional network of headache specialists or individuals who are interested in headache but members span you know people who practice on their own different kinds of doctors or even nurse practitioners um, and other providers and so we want to make sure that those init- diversity initiatives are upheld within the society and also headache medicine as a whole how can we improve healthcare um around headache medicine when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And we want to hold the society accountable for that and any of the other initiatives or um, organizations we work with accountable for that as well. So we literally just started. We picked our task force. We're going to announce them soon and we're going to get to work. We're going to do the deep work to evaluate the society, uh, evaluate our implicit biases and get stuff going for DEI projects. Wow. Look at you go. How do you have time to do all of this? It sounds like a really big thing to take on in addition. Yes. I didn't realize how how much time it would take. Uh-huh. <laughs> work. Yeah. It is a lot of time. And honestly, when you genuinely love something and you're passionate about something, you find you find time. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's another incredible initiative to be sharing online through your personal brand, right? Because that's also educating, continuing to educate the power of doing this kind of work and what it really, how it really affects the patients in the end. Yes, we were really careful and I was really careful about this because I, you know, when we we had discussions with, you know, the president and everyone in the society, we wanted to make sure we wanted to say, look, we don't, this is not a performative situation. We're not showcasing our work. We are doing the work in order to see the change and the mm-hmm. actions that come from our work. And that's that's what's important. That's where we make a difference. And we are, everyone is on board and, and excited. It's so hard to know where the performative aspects starts though, yeah. right? It, yes, it is. <laughs> like, isn't this the kind of thing you also want to be sharing? You're absolutely right. Yes, that you you are right. And I think sharing it in the right way. Yeah. Well, that's the heart. That's the challenging part. What is the right way? And when does it become performative? And sometimes it's up to the person sharing it that knows and you can't really. That's true. To me, like the line of performative is you're talking to talk, but you're not walking to walk. Right. Yes. So that, that's where it is. And I think right. that's what I want to avoid. Right. Right. So, well, that's obvious. If you're if you're saying you're doing something and you're not doing it, then I'm lying. Oh, well, I'm even though it's just starting, it sounds like, yep, you got your work cut out for you. But you are the best person to be on that task force. I'm so happy to hear 
that you are continuing to do all of these things and continuing to stay true to yourself and what your mission is. I mean, that's one thing that you have always, I've always known about you is like, you do you. Yes. And that's why it's so interesting that the medical school tried to beat it out of you. But you, you got back up. At least that was my it. perception, right? So right. <laughs> beat me. <laughs> but um well, maybe it was your greatest teacher, right? To have that the ultimate challenge of being in a position where you had to be in a position to ask and it kind of almost humbled so that you could emerge. This is your, this is like the fable of your, if I was going to write this as a hero story, (laughs) right? It's like, that was the, that was the, the, the monster you had to slay in order to really step into your own and now become headache simplified, simplified. (laughs) I have that, that, that vision board that I wrote about that has been on my wall for like five years. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Amazing. And so now you're running the podcast for JAMA. What does JAMA stand for? So um, JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, they are in a huge controversy right now. Like Black Twitter is going crazy right now because that JAMA is made up of like the umbrella of JAMA. And then there's like JAMA neurology, JAMA dermatology, JAMA surgery. And what JAMA did this past couple of weeks is they created a podcast about structural racism and they had two individuals, two doctors, not black, talk about how no physician is racist. And they created this rhetoric and it almost felt like they were, you know, I don't know. So out of touch, they don't understand what they did. Very, yes. (laughs) And everybody came for them, which is, you know, appropriate. Yeah. And, And they, and they actually tweeted about this too. So it, the damage was you created this whole podcast and this whole time you talked about a topic that no one told you in the boardroom that this was inappropriate and you posted it and you tweeted about it and your tweet was no physician is racist. So I'm paid by JAMA Neurology and I'm the host of the JAMA Neurology podcast and I create their tweets for JAMA Neurology. So I have nothing to do with like what happens in JAMA regular because I don't that's that like, was like the head JAMA, not... Exactly. To me, like, so now everyone's like, oh, I hate JAMA, blah, blah, blah. And obviously everyone is upset. Me as a black woman was very upset and I was conflicted. And if you follow me on Twitter, if something happens and it's, and I feel deeply passionate about it, especially around race relations, I'm going to tweet about it. Yeah. And I had this internal conflict of, oh my God. Right, like, you're on the payroll. Exactly. So I said, I need somebody to know that I'm pissed off about this and this is unacceptable. So I emailed my boss, who's <laughs> the editor-in-chief of JAMA Neurology, and I let him know. And he was supportive and he was just as upset. And I kind of was like, wink, wink, I'm about to tweet about this. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> so oh, good. And, and you- like, I felt like, so who am I to speak on these topics on everybody else and then not speak on it when it's coming from my house? So I wasn't okay with that. And so I did. So I, you know, I tweeted about it and then I put it on my Instagram stories and I immediately felt a little better because I felt free, right? I felt like I shouldn't do it, 
But then it's like, that's BS because what? And if you say something and what's going to happen, they're going to come after you. Well, then that's even more of a reason. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's a point. Stephanie, (laughs) Stephanie told me, she said, I don't understand why you're asking me this question because if you tweet about it and then they say, well, why did you do that? Then would you want to be working for someone who tells, asks you, why did you do that? Like, that doesn't make sense. Like, it's an amazing gig that you have, but you wouldn't want to be a part of it if they weren't going to let you speak your mind about this. Exactly. And and that's that's where I was just like, you know what? Um, I'm going to tweet this tweet. And until you guys rectify the situation or until like and rectify it correctly, do the self work. Did they apologize yet? They apologized. But the apology was, was poor. Yeah, we all know that. We're used to the cycle. <laughs> Sorry if people were offended. That's not what we meant. <laughs> you misunderstood. <laughs> yes, and da, 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 and it's true. Like, like, come on, come on, guys. Yeah. And you know what it is, Pia? As a black woman, and as someone from the Caribbean, mm-hmm. um, immigrants, ch- ch- a child of, and you understand this. Yeah, you are being given a seat at the table, and you are told to sit and listen and not speak, and you are told to observe and not ruffle feathers. Mm. Um, okay. Well, my ancestors ruffled feathers and because they did that, I got to where I am today. So yeah, Sam, <laughs> like, what do you want me to do? <laughs> and it's only with people continuing to ruffle feathers that anything changes. Exactly. So you got to just feel comfortable with that. And I have to say like, there's a way to do it. Right. So mm-hmm. there are people, there are enough people out there that are pissed off about something who curse and say things. But I always see like the most biting comments are the ones that are so crafty and there's a lot of <laughs> intellect behind it. There are no curse words. It's just like, ugh. <laughs> like, you know, because if, because the curse words or like the flippant comments allow the person to deflect what's really being spoken about. It's like when people get really angry, it's like, oh, well, you're angry. So now what you said has no validity. Yep. You know, so yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately, it's like to your point, it's uh, way more effective to suck it up and be very <laughs> thoughtful and crafty about what you say. But that doesn't mean you can't say it with bite. Right. Exactly. And and I'm learning that. And even my mom, she was kind of like, oh, don't tweet about that. Like, don't do that. And, and you know, you you know, you have a good working relationship in in, you know, jamming. Really? And, and that was the immigrant mentality. And she's, sure. awesome. and, you well, know, she's from, yeah, you know, it's crazy about her. Like <laughs> when I was growing up and we experienced racism, I didn't understand what was happening. I always thought she was overreacting. So she always spoke her mind. She always, she mm. counted money and stacks of money in front of people who, who profiled her and said, like, you can't afford to buy this. Like she's done like outrageously. <laughs> Oh my God. I love it. Let me tell you. (laughs) Um, And for her to say that to me, it was kind of like telling of, okay, make yourself small again. And then I told her like, well, I can't, my my integrity is in this. And what matters to me is my team, right? So my JAMA neurology team is amazing. They are supportive. They are thoughtful and conscious and good people. And I enjoy working with them. And I'll say that many times, like, you know, that the JAMA Neurology group of people are in, are, they're in the right place and they're mm-hmm. doing amazing work. And it's unfortunate that this happened in the JAMA umbrella. And 
we are all shocked, right? Yeah. Shocked. But you can make the argument of, well, why are you shocked? <laughs> it's like what happened with like Prince Harry and Meghan. Like everyone, yeah. like, why are you shocked? <laughs> and why was Oprah? It was a fake. <laughs> it was a fake response, <laughs> right? I mean, because deep down inside, it's like, yes, I will say I'm shocked and I will, you know, we are. Right. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, but you know what? You know, we saw this already. Like, you know, this this yeah. is, you know, since George shocked. Floyd. Like, this has been happening for years. And if you don't do the self-work, it's it's going to be there. It's it's individualized. If you don't do the self-work and you don't have that representation and presence. Well, you could argue that it's it's almost beneficial to for it to come out. Yes, yes. And right, right. right. Usually, and, and usually you see something like that coming out in instances where the person who's displaying this is extremely comfortable, right? Because sure. they don't view themselves as racist, but that doesn't mean you don't have a bias or an implicit bias that by definition you're not aware of. And that comes from everything. That comes from your upbringing, that comes from your experiences, seeing stereotypes, and yeah. that's something- And nobody's immune to that. No, <laughs> nobody. nobody. If you no. think you're immune, you're like, really don't know what you don't know. It exactly. doesn't make you a bad person. <laughs> Just like be aware of it. Like there, nobody is immune. You're not, you didn't grow up in a, in a box and not see anything. I mean, that's the only, your exposure. That's, that's how it works. So geez, I love this story about your mom counting money in front of people. That's a fucking boss. Like she, I mean, she's been followed in store and she's like double whammy, right? So she's a black woman. She had a thick, accent because she spoke Haitian Creole and French and she was a doctor. And so that comment about like, no physician is racist. Literally she experienced racism from other physicians. Fallen off of her chair. (laughs) (laughs) She was like, what? Like crazy. But yeah, she would do stuff like that. Like I remember when I was a child, we had, we were escorted by my aunt to and from school. We lived in a built apartment building. We had just come home with my aunt and my mom was home. We get a knock at the door and it's this Karen, now known as a Karen, yeah. at the door and tells my mother, there have been children ringing doorbells up and down the building and your children were doing it. And oh my God, <laughs> like if my mom could have taken off her earrings at that point, <laughs> I literally was at the, like I was literally in the kitchen and my mom was like, excuse me? And she told her, like, my children just came home and they escorted every day. Like, what are you insinuating? And so the lady just kept going on and on. She was raising her oh voice. My God. And my mom, and I was kind of like the sassy child. So my mom called me. And I remember this. She said, Cynthia, come here. She called me. She said, what did I tell you about these people in this building? A building. And then I said, ignore them. And she was like, this is what I teach my children about you. How dare you? How dare you come to my door and accuse my children of something? She was pissed. She literally told that Karen off. And I thought she was overreacting because I I was a child and I didn't understand what was happening. But now I look back at those experiences like that, her counting money, her raising her voice, her like speaking her mind in public situations. And I'm just like, thanks, mom. Thank you. Thank you because you made me the person who I am today. I'm stronger because I witnessed that and I saw your reaction. I saw you speak up. You didn't, you know, you you felt like you had a voice, which is awesome. And you 
you gave it to them. And I think, I think we have to teach our children to speak up, right? That's this. We is- just have to be it and do it. That's exactly. what I mean. She didn't teach you; she just yeah. was. Fair point. And to me, it's like, yeah, you taught me, but you did it. That that those were actions, right? Right, because right, it's not effective for her to tell you to speak up and then not do it in that situation. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, she talk the talk and walk the walk and. Now I look back and I'm just like, wow, like she wasn't overreacting. Like this is a real thing. Like yeah. I experienced it too. Like, you know, someone in, I went to Zara and I was paying with my credit card and this guy asked me um, for my ID, which is fine. And he go, and he said something like, well, is this your credit card? Oh, I went off. <laughs> well, you looked at your ID. What is the kind like, of question what is you that? Mean, is this my is this yeah, whose credit card do you think this is? Like you're looking oh at it. God. I literally like, <laughs> but you know, it's 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 experiences like that that I thank her for because I'm gonna say something and, and yeah, and not- you're not gonna not say something and then feel shitty about it. Right, right. I mean, you may still feel shitty about it, but you know, you know <laughs> at least you being in these positions. Yeah, you do. I I do think there's um a level of doubt in terms of like, "Mm, what did I just do? Like, was that the right thing to do? And you almost have to convince yourself, okay, it was the right thing to speak out, to speak on this. And that's the part, that's the part that is not good because you should speak out and it's not right for you to experience racism or bias. And these are teachable moments and you should be able to dialogue with the other person. Yeah. And if you're able to do it in a way that, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe gets them to see something, that's even better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe right. not. That's yeah, okay, too. Yeah. Not, not your responsibility, but. I said what I said, and now I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> Girl, well, I'm happy to hear that you are comfortable speaking up. And, you know, I, I could see why your mom would feel that way, despite her being having spoken up so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just assume she's not like really on social media. Not at all. She has no idea. Yeah. She has no yeah idea. It's like a new <laughs> world, but also like a new level of, I mean, it's a completely different world. <laughs> it is. It and is. then social media is a different world on top of the completely different world. And I would just, I'm just guessing that she's not as privy anyone from that generation, you know, my parents, I just feel like they're kind of missing a piece of what's going on just because it's a different experience that we've had at our age growing up in this world and, and also just watching social media and how these conversations play out Mm -hmm. just gives you a different perspective. Absolutely. But I, I would hope, and I'm glad to hear like, speak, speak your mind. Like that's what we all want. We all want to hear what you have to say. And, and that's part of what's going to make your brand like so much more powerful too. Yes, that is true. And I, and I'm realizing that I'm realizing that it, my voice or anyone who's creating a brand and speaking out, your voice is important. And my, my professional coach in that program, she always said, ref, do not refer to yourself in the third person. So I will say my voice is important. Yeah. Yeah. Your voice is important. And I think, you know, besides just wanting to catch up and have you on the podcast, I think what I wanted, what I thought was most powerful about bringing you on here for all these entrepreneurs, right? Because you're not 
technically an entrepreneur and but yet you're doing all of the things you're building this personal brand to get your message out there and at any point could become an entrepreneur right like you could decide to open your own practice or do whatever you wanted to do with this career but you really so many people out there are kind of entrepreneurs just by owning their own personal brand and putting their voice out there there's an there that is what entrepreneurship requires these days anyway. And you're doing such a great job of it. And I, I guess I wanted to talk to you now that you're still, you're not at the beginning. Cause at this point you got the podcast, you got the, you got the social media accounts, you're making the videos. Have you been making videos yet? Like longer so videos? I literally just posted my first video. Oh, you did? At like midnight. <laughs> oh, you did? On yes, YouTube? I did. Yeah. Where? Oh, my, in, on Insta. On Insta. Oh, okay. I'm still trying to figure it out, but I did this. Just do it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you know, I edited it and it took forever, but I needed to do that. And I'm proud of the product. It's not perfect, but I'm proud of the product and the information is out there. Yes. And we don't know that it's not perfect. I think perfectionism is another thing that probably has stopped you from doing it. Yes, yes. <laughs> Before now. But as I said in a podcast a couple of weeks ago, if you're not embarrassed by things you did like years ago, then you're not growing. So just that's the journey. You want to be embarrassed by this later. All right. Well, okay. So that sucks. Then of things that I've done in the past. <laughs> okay. Yes, because it means that you're getting better and you're growing. And that's what we're trying to do. We don't want to just stay stuck in the same spot. Very true. Yeah. Well, Cynthia, such a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for sharing and sharing your brilliance with the world and sharing some behind the scenes stories with us. I'm sure everyone's going to get a lot out of it. I know I did. And all I can say is everybody go follow Cynthia. Now you have two accounts, so I don't want to say the wrong one. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I was thrilled to just have this dialogue with you. I missed you. Thank you. It was wonderful. Yes, you too. Yeah. So I am, again, I'm figuring out my brand, but the simplified idea on Instagram, I'm simplified MD. So C-Y-N-P-L-I-F-I-E-D-M-D. Yes. And on Twitter, I'm Sinarmon MD. So on Twitter, I'm easier to find because it's just Sinarmon. Sinarmon. Well, I'll link to those in the show notes. Yes, but we can all follow your journey with it too. And I think it's like, even if you're not a migraine sufferer, although I find that a lot of entrepreneurs that I talk to are migraine sufferers, it's like part of, for me, it actually is like, I feel like it was part of the reason that I never got a salary job. Mm. Really? Mm. You know, I really can't handle, I, I never could handle a salary job because I couldn't handle a job where I had to call out. So I had to have like gig type of jobs. I mean, that's that what you just said right there. That's what you said is very powerful. A lot of individuals will identify with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I think that I'm surrounded by people with migraines because of that, because a lot of a lot of people I coach tend to have or I hear that a lot of them have it. So I'm sure they'll want to follow you. But also just to see, I think it's a really it's a, you are an interesting because it's different than a lot of the people I talk to an interesting example of building a personal brand around a serious topic and melding those two and bringing the authentic voice out and how all of that, how you can really step into that and own it as a way to connect with people. And that's what everybody is trying or should be trying to do if you're building your authority online is, is not to sound smart, <laughs> but to be yourself and, and then share your, your brilliance through that. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yes. Yeah, great talking to you. Mwah. Love you. Love you too. 
If you want to follow Cynthia's journey building her brand and spreading her message, and definitely if you also suffer from migraines or headaches like I do, follow her on Instagram at SimplifiedMD. That's C-Y-N-Plified-M-D. I will link to it in the show notes at piasilva.com backslash podcast. In other news, I am starting a new series answering questions from you, the listeners. If you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, include a question, and I answer your question on the show, then I will invite you to schedule a free 15-minute chat with me where I can help get you unstuck in your brand or your business. Now, when I coach clients personally, which I only do once in a while, it's usually only in 15-minute calls anyway, and we get a lot done in 15 minutes. And I charge a lot of money for it. So I think this is a pretty sweet deal. I look forward to hearing from you. Also, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode of Show Your Business Who's Boss again. And if you love the show, please share it on social media and don't forget to tag me. Taking inspiration from Cynthia today, are you ready to just drop the perfectionism and just do it? You know who you are. Perfectionism is the enemy of action, and we are all guilty of it. But when you are willing to not be perfect, that's when you can really start playing and creating and trying things. And that's how we grow, and that's how we learn. And that might just be your next step to showing your business who's boss. Show Your Business Who's Boss is produced by Yellow House Media. Production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode is edited by Marty Seafeld. Production assistance by Kristen Runvik. Our theme music is Glass Prisms by Western Runners. Mm-hmm.